fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and the smell of fresh manna. Today you will be listening to Garrett Morgan, pastor of Big Rapids, Bristol, and Reed City Seventh-day Adventist churches. And now, here's Pastor Garrett. Happy Sabbath, everyone. It's such a blessing to see all of you here. I know that it can be when you wake up and you see that wonderful winter wonderland out there, it can be tempting to stay home, can it? I know that it can be for me as well, but I'm just praising the Lord that you're in God's house today. It's a blessing to be with the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started on today's message. Father, Lord, we thank you for the beautiful, wonderful words of life. Lord, today we don't want to see Pastor Garrett, but we want to see your truth. We want to see Jesus. And Father, I pray that as we read your word, that we would understand, that you would give us the spirit of understanding, for spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Lord, if we're cloudy today, because sometimes we wake up a little bit cloudy in the morning, Father, I ask that you would clear our minds that we can understand these heavenly truths. Father, you are so good to us, and Lord, we just want to worship and honor you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we've been on this journey, and we only have one more week left. Today, we're going to be covering the road to Damascus, and then next week we will be taking a look at the Saints' half an hour trip. I'm looking forward to doing that with each and every one of you. Here's what we've gone through thus far for those of you that are new and maybe haven't been here before. The first week we took a look at salvation's only entrance, and of course we know the only way to salvation is through who? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's only one way, there's no shortcuts. There's no trail, there's no back road, there is only one way to heaven, only one way to eternal life, and that is Jesus Christ. The next week, we took a look at the Messianic road and how the crowds in Jerusalem, as they were gathered there for the Passover, sang Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And the next week, we took a look at the Via Dolorosa, or the way of suffering, and we found that that crowd that had been singing praises, was now saying, crucify him, crucify him. What a shift. And then we took a look at the road to Emmaus and the two disciples that were walking with Jesus, and they didn't even realize that it was Jesus until they had come to their house. We took a look at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza. And finally, this week, we'll be on the Damascus Road and we will close next week with the Saints' half-an-hour trip. But I'm always excited to talk about the conversion of Saul because it's just an amazing story that we can learn from ourselves. But before we get into that, I'd like to tell you a story. This is a familiar scene, not just to me, but to maybe some people here. 
when I was a Bible worker in Lansing, I had the privilege of being a volunteer chaplain at the Jackson State Prison there in Jackson. I believe that Mike was also there, and he helped out with that as well. And I'll tell you, and I think I may have mentioned this before, I've been in quite a few jails and prisons since then, and it's very interesting because you come and you walk across the yard and you see men exercising and walking laps or shooting hoops or something like that, and you walk across the yard to the classroom that serves as your chapel of the day, and you have your worship service with them, and then you come back the next week, and then you leave again, and you go and do your business, and you come back the next week, and they're still there. You come back seven days later, and guess what? They haven't left. They're still there. Week after week after week after week, these people are still there. And it's a different world when you're behind, not necessarily bars, but coils of barbed wire. And I remember these worship services, and and trust me, I love worshiping here with all of you, but I remember that these men had been trying to get hymnals for years so that they could sing together, and they just weren't coming. And finally, one of our church elders realized that they needed hymnals, and he was able to get some. And I remember the first time that they opened those hymnals and were able to sing together and the tears that were running down their cheeks as they were able to sing Amazing Grace, as they were able to sing All to Jesus, I Surrender. And, you know, not all of those men sung on tune, let me tell you. Not all of them sang quietly. I can't say that any of them sang quietly. They all sang pretty loud. And it wasn't necessarily on key. It wasn't a choir by any means. But I think it's some of the most beautiful music that I've ever heard in my life. Because these people were truly getting to know their Savior, even in such a dark place. And this story that I'm about to tell this morning before we get into our message has to do with a full-time chaplain back in the early 1900s. He had been the chaplain for a few years at a state prison, and it was not just a low-security prison like the one that I have served at, but it was very high security. The men that were in this prison tended to have committed some very, let's just say, violent crime. But every Saturday, he would have worship service for those that chose to worship then. On Sunday, he would have worship service for those that chose to worship then. Midweek, he would have a meeting or what we would call prayer meeting for those that chose to come. And he also would meet with as many inmates as was possible or as his time would permit. He really loved his job. The first few weeks of being a chaplain in that prison, it was very eerie to him. And it is quite something when the door closes behind you and you recognize, okay, this is not just society, this is very different. But after a few weeks, he began to get a little bit more comfortable with being in this environment and it began to kind of be like a little bit of a home to him, even as a prison chaplain. Every week he would get up and he would present his message and he would see the same faces, although a few new ones would come and pop up and for that they praise the Lord. And then every once in a while, there would be a praise that one of them would be out on parole and they would have special prayer for that man. Prayer that he would not only continue to walk the straight and narrow, but that God would be able to use him as he went out in the general population. 
Fortunately, some of those men that left that prison never returned and he never saw their faces again. Hallelujah. But unfortunately, sometimes that inmate would leave and a few weeks, a few months, or sometimes even a few days, he would see that same old face that he had seen just a few weeks earlier back in his prison. Really sad. But one day, after he had been there for a few years, he was behind the pulpit. And he was going to begin to preach, and as he walked into a room, he recognized that something was different, and he couldn't quite put his finger on it. A few of the early birds were there already, sitting on the benches, and they were talking about spiritual things. And as he began to get ready to preach his message, and he was shuffling his papers and opening his Bible, he finally realized the difference in this room. The benches were there, just like usual. The men were there, just like usual, and they were beginning to trickle in. But there were three chairs that were sitting in the very back of that classroom that was serving as their chapel for the day. And that isn't necessarily unusual. Sometimes there were some extra chairs in the back, and those that weren't necessarily, let's say, comfortable in the situation would sometimes sit back there. But these chairs had a black covering over them. They were draped in what looked like black tablecloths. And he thought to himself, inmates don't just have black tablecloths laying around. So this must be something that came from above in the prison system. And before he began to speak, a few moments beforehand, three men were led into the room and they were not free like all the other men. They were shackled and they were put to sit down on these three chairs that were covered in black cloth. Well, he was a little bit startled and maybe a little uncomfortable about this. And so before he began his message, he went to one of the guards that was standing nearby, and he asked the question about the elephant in the room. What is going on with these three chairs sitting in the back of my congregation? The guard didn't really want to make eye contact with the chaplain, but as he slowly looked up, he gave him the terrible truth. Those three men that were sitting in those black chairs had been sitting on death row for quite some time. And that early morning, the next morning at two o'clock, they were scheduled to be executed. Now we know that that happens. We know that it happened a lot more back in those days, but that was the first time that the chaplain had ever come into contact with something like this. And he asked another question to the guard. The question was, are you meaning to tell me that this is the last message of Jesus that these men will receive? And the guard nodded his head and said, yes, pastor, this is the last time that they will hear about Christ. And as the chaplain began to go up front to speak, he had always felt that it was important and a great deal of responsibility was upon his shoulders when he was presenting the Word of God, but his knees began to shake a little bit. And he began to be overwhelmed with the responsibility that the pleas that he would give from the pulpit and the words of Christ that he was going to read would be the last chance that these men had to accept Jesus as their personal Savior. 
He preached as well as he knew how. He prayed for the Holy Spirit to be there with him, and he couldn't sleep that night. And as the clock struck two o'clock, those men indeed met their fate. And that troubled him. He hoped and he prayed that these men had listened. He shared with them the best that he could, and it was up to the Holy Spirit to convict in the last few hours that those men had. Friends, today there are no black chairs in the back of our sanctuary, praise the Lord. There isn't anybody here that is sitting on death row. If there is, please let me know. But in reality, we do not know the responsibility that truly lays upon all of our shoulders as Christians. And not just as Christians, but as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. We have a message to truly a dying world. And the words of hope, the words of Jesus that you may share to your neighbor, to your family, to the people sitting next to you, in front of you, or behind you today, it's a possibility that those words of Jesus may be the last ones that they hear before their probation closes. What a responsibility that we truly have. And today we're going to take a look at a story that talks about this. We read in our scripture reading here in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, and if you are there, we're going to spend some time there today, so you might want to be open there. But as Mitch and yourself read, Saul was a very important human being. He was not only born with Jewish pedigree and stature and apparently a very sharp mind. You can tell he had a sharp mind just by reading Romans. But he was also born a Roman. He had that dual citizenship, if you want to call it that. And he had been taught by a great rabbi, Rabbi Galimalel. You can find that in Acts chapter 22. Verse 33, Saul, if I was to put a name or a title upon him, would be the Pharisee's prodigy. He was the poster child of the Sanhedrin. He knew the Old Testament back and forth, and not only did he know the Old Testament and the laws of Moses, but he knew the way that the Roman government worked. He knew how to negotiate with them because, in fact, he was a citizen, and we find that he was very involved in some very prominent things with the Pharisees before his conversion. When you take a look at Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it's interesting to note that someone who claimed to be a follower of God is described as breathing threatenings and slaughter. Does that sound like a converted heart? It truly doesn't to me. But Saul was convinced, Saul was deceived, some may say, in thinking and truly believing that these murderous thoughts and actions towards the new Christian faith was God-ordained. Saul believed that putting away, either violently or in prison, putting away this Christian belief was something that God had called him to do. 
And not only did he want to do this under the table, but we found there in verse 2 that he was given a legal right to perform, well, let's just say the bounty hunting of Christians that he longed to do. And that's indeed what he did. And in verse 3, we find that he is on his way to find more Christians to persecute in prison and even maybe kill in Damascus. And it didn't matter to Saul if you were a man, a woman, or a child. We find there in verse 2 that if you had the name of Christian, you were on his wanted list. Saul was zealous and had legal permission to go hunting for Christians. But let's read a few other things here. Let's go to Acts chapter 9, verse 2. We read this, and we're going to skip around here a little bit in the book of Acts. And desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, or the Christian faith, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem, supporting what we just mentioned. But skip down here as we continue on to verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Here we find Saul in his prime, in his pride of youth, and he is on his way to do what he believes is his, let's just say, crusade. And as he's going to Damascus, well, something stops him dead in his tracks. But I'd like to read you another quote here, and it's from the book Acts of the Apostles. This was not the first time that Saul had been introduced to this quote-unquote light that the Christians seemed to have. Saul had been present, we know this from the scriptural account, Saul had been present at the martyrdom of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. We all know that, right? He was present, but not only was he present, but he was active in the prosecution of Stephen as well. He was not just a passive onlooker, but he was one that put the nails in the coffin, so to speak, of Stephen. And we find this here in Scripture, but also in this paragraph that kind of speaks of this. It says, Saul had taken a prominent part in the trial and conviction of Stephen. And the striking evidences of God's presence with the martyr had led Saul to doubt the righteousness of the cause he had espoused against the followers of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? So as Saul was watching Stephen, as he was being stoned during his trial, as he saw the face of Stephen be lighted up, as he was even being put to death, it made Saul take a step back and think, huh, maybe I am not on the right side of this. We call that conviction, don't we? And that's a gift from the Holy Spirit. But Saul continues, it says, his mind was deeply stirred. We'll talk about that in a moment. In his perplexity, he appealed to those in whom wisdom and judgment, he had full confidence. The arguments of the priests and rulers, the same ones that I might add crucified Christ, finally convinced him that Stephen was a blasphemer, that the Christ whom the martyr disciple had preached was an imposter, and that those ministering in holy office must be 
right. Continuing on, not without severe trial did Saul come to this conclusion. But in the end, notice this, in the end his, what? His education and prejudices, his respect for his former teachers, and his what? And his pride of what? Popularity braced him to rebel against the voice of conscience and the grace of God. Saul was not only an eyewitness of Stephen's stoning, but he was active in making sure that Stephen would indeed die. And as he watched this take place, he was convicted. But he ignored that conviction because of things that some of us, and indeed can be, good. Is it a good thing to have people that we trust when it comes to our spiritual walk? Yes or no? The Bible tells us to have spiritual mentors. Is it a good thing to be educated about the Word of God? Yes, it is. I would say maybe to a point. Don't get too smart for your own good, if you know what I'm saying. But Saul here had some good things, and he put his pride, he put his teachers, he put his education, but above all, he put his popularity before the conviction that God had blessed him with. And he denied it. In fact, we find an interesting verse here in Acts chapter 5, verse 33. This is when Stephen is there and he's being prosecuted. And two times in the Bible do we see this phrase. It says, when they heard that, or they heard the testimony of Stephen, they were cut to the heart or conviction. Have you ever felt cut to the heart before? I know I have, right? They were cut to the heart. And how did they respond to that? They took counsel to what? Slay him. It's interesting, but when you read the book of Acts, you find two very, very, almost word-for-word similar sermons. You find Stephen as he's preaching, I would say, before the Sanhedrin, and it says that they were pricked to the heart, and how did they react? Well, they killed him. And then we find Peter, a few chapters later, who preaches almost the identical thing to Stephen. And it says in that chapter as well, you can read it for yourself later, that the audience hearing Peter was cut to the heart. Some translations may say pricked to the heart. And that audience responded by saying, Lord, what do you want us to do? Friends, all of us will be convicted. And when we are convicted, often there are lots of different emotions that pop up in our mind, isn't there? Often we respond to conviction with sadness and guilt, and that has its place. Often we respond to conviction with, like maybe they did, anger. But today, if Jesus is convicting us, well, we need to listen, don't we? And not just be listen, but willing. Let's keep reading here in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, and we're going to continue here in verse 4. Acts chapter 9 and verse 4, after Saul has seen this great light shining around him, it says, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, I'd like to take a look at that for just a moment here. It's very ironic that Saul in his pride, when he comes face to face with Jesus, 
or just seeing the glory of Jesus falls. And as he falls, either from off his feet or he was riding an animal, I don't know which, but as he falls, Jesus begins to speak. And Jesus had every right to say, what are you doing? That could have been how Jesus chose to respond or begin to talk to Saul. He could have said, well, you're an enemy. He could have said a whole bunch of things, and God would have been right. But Jesus, when he's approaching Saul, Saul that had had a part in killing Stephen, Saul that was persecuting the early Christian church, Jesus responds with gentleness. Praise God. And we pick up on that tone. When you repeat someone's name twice, it means that you're being very intimate with them. Saul. Saul. Now, we don't know if Saul had anything to do with the crucifixion of Jesus. He may have. I don't think that he did, but it's possible. But Saul was persecuting the Christian church, and Jesus took it personally, didn't he? Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? But Jesus says, why are you persecuting who? Me. Isn't it a blessing to know that when you are being persecuted for the sake of Jesus, that you are not suffering that alone? When you are persecuted, when people speak evil of you, when people may laugh at your belief in Christ, because they think it's uneducated, they think that it is stupidity, whatever it may be, when people say that about you and your faith, Jesus really feels that. And we see that here in this story. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, Saul asks the question that needs to be asked. He doesn't know who he's talking to. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the answer that Jesus gives him must have made the heart of Saul sink. And the Lord said, I am Jesus. And he mentions again, whom you persecute. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. Again, Jesus here says twice, which means it's a point of emphasis. He introduces himself as Jesus. But he says again, you are actively persecuting me. And when this great light, this divine light that knocked Saul off his feet, introduces himself as Jesus, Saul's brain must have been going a mile a minute. He must have recognized that that conviction that he had pushed away indeed was right. And he was persecuting and he was killing and imprisoning the very ones that were the followers of God. Talk about guilt. Talk about pressure. Talk about conviction. All of these things flooding in the mind of Saul. But something is very interesting here, and I was always confused. Now, I've told you this before, but I listened to the New Testament, and it's narrated by Johnny Cash. Like, his voice is, like, incredible. I mean, I used to love his music a lot. And he has a song, and it's a gospel song. I really like it. And it's a scripture song. It's called When the Man Comes Around. It talks about the second coming of Jesus. And in that song, he actually quotes this. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. So when I read this verse, I read it in the voice of Johnny Cash. 
You're welcome for that. Now you might not be able to read this text the same. But I've always envisioned like Saul kicking against a rose bush, you know? And I never really stopped to kind of delve in or actually study what it means. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Is it talking about like a locust plant or you remember those goat heads that you used to get when you were like riding your bike as a kid and they'd pop your tire? You ever get those? I remember I got those all the time. Is that what it's talking about? Well, your translation might not say pricks. Your translation might say like goad head. Does yours say that? Like a goad? Yours says a goad? Okay. That's a more accurate translation of that text. And a prick does work, but this isn't just a plant, but a goad head is actually a tool that was used by agricultural farmers back in the Middle East during the time of Christ and also today, depending on what part of the Middle East that you're in and what it's for. If a farmer is using an ox or a donkey or something like that to plow his field, you know that animals sometimes have a mind of their own? So do humans, <laughs> right? But animals sometimes have a mind of their own. And so if the farmer is there and they're plowing the field, and as they're going along, sometimes that animal, well, it might have a different path that it's thinking about. And it begins to go its own way and not go in that straight and narrow path. So the farmer would have this ox goad in its hand. And what would the farmer do? Give it a little bit of, let's say, encouragement, right? To be nice. And usually when that little piece of metal or sometimes stone or bone would prick that ox or whatever animal it was, it would get that animal back in line. Very similar to how the verse said that Saul was cut or pricked to the heart. But sometimes that animal would have so much of a stubborn streak in it that it would physically kick against the ox goad. When it was being pricked, it would shove even harder in that direction. And when that animal would do that, would that cause more or less pain? A lot more pain, right? Because if you kick against that, it's going to go deeper and deeper and deeper inside of you. And that hurts. Saul here is being pricked by the Holy Spirit. And as he's pricked, what does he do? He's kicking against it. And he's not only causing Jesus pain, but he's causing himself some serious pain. Sound familiar? Oh man, it sounds familiar in my life. You know, sometimes there's some things that maybe God wants me to do, or Jesus is beginning to convict me to do, and I'm like, Lord, that's not for me. It may be a good idea, and it might be the right path, but are you sure that you want Garrett Morgan to do that? Maybe you've had a similar conversation with God. And friends, when we refuse to do that, not only are we, in a sense, persecuting Christ like Saul did, but we're hurting ourselves. The way of the Lord is always better, isn't it? The path that Christ wants you to take, although it may appear a little bumpy sometimes, is the path that will give you the most peace. Even in the middle of a storm, even in the middle of a riot, even in the middle of a global pandemic, when you're walking with Christ, he will make sure that you are protected. Saul, I'm sure, is shocked. He asks who it was. The Lord introduces himself. And I love how Saul answers. Saul here doesn't kick against the prick any longer. Verse 6. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what 
will you have me to do? These are the questions that our world is asking today. First of all, the world today is asking the question that Saul did, who are you, Lord? Friends, so many people today have a false idea of who God is. We were talking last night around the Agape Feast table about the atheist and that we were praying for, and Larry made the point that maybe he's been given a false representation of who God is, and that's why he doesn't believe in him. Friends, there are people today that have a false idea of the God that we serve, and Saul had a very false idea of God, an extremely false idea of God. Saul is told to go to Damascus. He's willing. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And as he goes to Damascus, he's there for three days. And there's a lot more that we can talk about with the story that we don't have time for today. We could talk about the man that God says to go and talk to Saul. And I'm sure that man was saying something along the lines of, you mean you want me to go and talk to the man that wants to kill me? You're sure? (laughs) We could talk about that, and that would be a great use of our time. But I want to talk today about something else, because we find that as Saul is there and he is faced with the brightness of Christ, well, something happens. Matthew chapter 21 says this, Whoever shall fall on this stone, being Christ, will be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Saul here is being broken. But Acts chapter 9, let's continue here because this is the part that I want us to notice. As Saul is there and he's being converted, we find in Acts chapter 9 verse 18, it says this, And immediately after his conversion, immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Saul, when he's introduced to Jesus, now this is interesting, Jesus is the light, isn't he? When we have Jesus in our life, We should receive light and sight, right? But when Saul is introduced to Jesus, what happens? He can't see. These scales are over his eyes. And it's only until after he spends time with prayer with God that these scales begin to come off his eyes and he can see again. I'd like to submit to you something here today. I believe these scales that were on the eyes of Saul were there long before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. I believe that these scales that were on the eyes of Saul began when he was just a child. These different ideas of who God was and Jesus of Nazareth was, these scales began to be put on the eyes of Saul, the scales of pride, the scales of a false Jesus, the scales of hate. But above all, there's a different scale that I believe that was on the eyes of Saul And we find it here and maybe in an unusual place. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. We all know this text. It's in the commandments. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, what I'm about to say is maybe a little bit complicated. And I'm pausing because I'm trying to get my thoughts together so I can portray it right. Saul had put up in his mind, a false idea of who God was. He was deceived in thinking that his God wanted him to persecute Christians. 
And that's a false idea of God, isn't it? This false idea of God had been lifted up by the religious leaders of the day. This false idea of God, as he preached this God of his own creation, as he began to talk about this God that was a false God, he was given praise and accolades. His popularity grew because of his preaching of this false God. He was given pats on the back for the preaching of this God that was excited about the crucifixion of Jesus. Friends, this God that Saul set up in his own mind and preached to many was nothing but an idol. Friends, today I believe that we as Christians, we as Seventh-day Adventists, are in danger of setting up an image of God that is not scriptural. We often want our God to be something that we can form, right? A God that we can say, I want my God to be like this. I want my God to be very loving, but I don't want him to have any judgment. And we fail to recognize that in order to be loving, you have to have judgment, right? Or we take a look at our God and we say, you know, I really don't like that about him. That makes me uncomfortable. And maybe we don't recognize what we're doing, but over time, we often begin to form a God in our own minds that in reality, and this is really scary, in reality, mimics not the God of the Bible, but the God of yourself. Friends, the God that we sit up in our minds, the God that we sit up in our hearts is so often just an image, not of Satan, but of me, but of you. And this is exactly one of the reasons that Saul had scales on his eyes. Saul was truly deceived. And friends, today, the question that needs to be asked to every one of us is, are there scales in your eyes? What are the things, what are the beliefs, what are the dogmas that may be blocking your view of the real Jesus? The view of not the God of your invention, but the God of the Bible. The question that we should be asking is, how do I tell if I have scales on my eyes? And this story gives us the answer. When Saul came face to face with Jesus, was he aware that he was blinded? When Saul came face to face with Jesus, was he aware that there were scales on his eyes? You better believe that he was. And he had some repenting to do. Friends, today, if you maybe are nervous that you may have some scales on your eyes, if you're having a difficult time communicating with God, if you feel that he's distant, if you feel that he is not listening, First of all, remember that feelings are feelings. They're not fact. And second, look at Jesus and ask him to reveal those things to you because I guarantee you that he will. And not only will he identify your problem, but he will help you be rid of them so that you can see clearly. Isn't that what we need? Is not that what we truly long for? Saul was willing and he repented, and he was baptized, and later wrote some of the most beautiful words of the Bible. The one that was killing Christians for their belief in Jesus now writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Amen. 
For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just will live by faith. Paul was not ashamed to admit publicly the delusion that he had been caught up in. As he's standing there before Agrippa, he tells him the very fact, listen, I'm the chief of sinners. I've killed Christians who I now profess to be. I'm a twisted person. He had no problem admitting that. But then he also mentions, but I met this man named Jesus, the one that I was kicking against, the one that I was fighting with every tooth and nail. Now I've recognized that he can change people like me. Friends here today, I'm sure that none of you have killed a Christian. I'm sure that none of you have done the terrible things that our friend Saul had done. If Saul can have this change of heart, don't you think you can as well? If Saul can have those scales recognized and taken off, don't you think you can as well? You can try to take them off yourself and you only create more. You can try and try and try, but you'll only be kicking against the pricks unless you have a relationship with Christ. Father, Lord, we know that the only way that we can be more holy, the only way that we can be like Jesus, is to surrender to the Holy One, to surrender to you. Father, we ask this week as we continue on a sin-filled world, that we can lift you up, that we can share with those who are asking like Saul, Lord, who are you? And Father, as we answer, may we recognize the power that you will give us to speak to people that may be, may be their last chance. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You have been listening to Garrett Morgan, pastor of Big Rapids, Bristol, and Reed City Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Big Rapids Seventh-day Adventist Church at 1031 Rose Avenue in Big Rapids, and their church service begins at 9.30 a.m. Or visit the Bristol Seventh-day Adventist Church located at 11225 East 8 Mile Road in Tustin, and their church service begins at 11.30 a.m. Or visit the Reed City Seventh-day Adventist Church located at 17290 U.S. Highway 10 in Hersey, and their church service begins at 3 p.m. This program has been a Strong Tower Radio production.